Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Hello. It's Monday, November 8th, 2021. Welcome to the Defender Bible Study Podcast. I'm Mark Sly. I have the joy of serving as the Vice President of International Ministries here at Lifeline Children's Services. This morning, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 9 and verses 14 through 33. But I'd like to invite you, if you haven't already, go back and check out Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 13 that Dr. Rick Morton covered last week. It'll give you a great foundation for what we're going to jump into today. First off, before we jump into verse 13 through 33, I want to invite you first to grab a copy of God's Word. Make sure you're following along and reading with us so that you can see the context from which we are drawing a lot of this commentary. Also, I'd like to start by saying that I think before we can glean anything really valuable from this passage of Scripture, we have to first look at our motive and our reason for coming to Scripture in the first place. Ultimately, our goal is not knowledge. It's life change, right? I mean, think about when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're the same person today that you were that day in your character in your desires, affections, in your pursuits, then something is probably off. Something is probably wrong. It's why Paul writes the believers in Ephesus. I write, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He continues in Colossians 1 verse 10. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Even further, he explains that that fruit is very specific. So we read in Galatians 5, through 24, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we come to scripture expecting just or merely to feel comforted about the difficulties that we face or to get an answer to one of our questions, we've we've come to scripture for the wrong reason. We're asking the Bible to be something it was never intended to be. And we will leave that time in the word and potentially later leave our faith disappointed, disgruntled, and maybe even disgusted. But the issue at this point isn't just the Christian faith, it's the misconception of Christianity altogether, and it's a mistaken approach to God's Word. I love what C.S. Lewis says in regards to this. He says, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and then in the end, despair. So how do we move from reading the Word for information's sake, for knowledge's sake, to reading the word for a changed life. I believe it has to begin with maintaining our primary ambition. And Jesus answered this question of what our primary purpose or ambition is as followers of Christ when he said in Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
It's the beginning and it's the core of our faith. Our life radically changes as we enter into relationship with and have our lives bound to his through faith in Christ as Lord, our Savior. We love God because he, we come to a point where we understand that he first loved us. It's 1 John four nineteen, But it doesn't stop there, which is why Paul writes this exhortation surrounding that verse 9 in Colossians 1 that we read a moment ago. He says, so from the very day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, loving God leads to pursuing him with our affections. And in our loving pursuit, we seek to know him more intimately. And then in knowing and understanding who he is, His spirit changes us from the inside out. Loving leads to learning, leads to living. So why does this matter? When we come to Romans chapter 9 and the issue of predestination or election, many of us come to it with one of these two questions or issues. The first one is this. If man does not have the free will to choose to surrender and follow Christ, then how do we actually have the ability to love God? Would we not just simply be automatons or machines or robots simply just playing our part in God's play? The opposite or second issue, of, and that's related to the first, is this. If man chooses to love God and in response to that decision, God saves man, then how is God sovereign? How is he independent? Wouldn't he simply be complying to our will and not his own? I think these are two incredible questions to wrestle with, but what we walked through a moment moment ago, love, learn, and live, shows us that before we dive more fully into this passage together and we wrestle with these questions, we first have to decide the reason that we are asking these questions about man's will and God's sovereignty. Why are we looking for the answer to these questions? Is it so that we can more fully understand, love, and reflect God's character? Or is it simply so that I can check an intellectual box or put our feelings at rest? Our purpose in approaching this passage will impact what we are truly able to glean from it. So first, we check our own motives. But there's a second motive or purpose that we need to look at as well. What is the issue at hand for Paul? In other words, what is he addressing? Keep in mind that each of these books from Paul's hand in the New Testament are written as epistles or letters. These are rich with personal greetings, affirmations, rebukes, encouragements. He's writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but he is pinning these passages to people and they're real people. And he does so as he places himself in their shoes as he writes. We've seen it multiple times already when he assumes responses from his readers and answers their questions before they even ask them. It's oftentimes the same thing that we do as parents. Or in the case of Lifeline Children's Services, what our caseworkers do and what our counselors do 
when they think ahead and, and kind of head off issues or problems before they manifest themselves in a conversation or with a client or a child. They offer better ways to approach a child, for instance, with a traumatic history, suggesting a better way maybe to discipline with these contexts in mind. And we're going to find that Paul is doing the same thing here. Paul is addressing a specific need or question in the lives of those who are following Christ in Rome during the first century. So that brings us to what was written in chapter 8 and the first half of chapter 9. Paul is describing the unbelievable riches of God's grace toward, dare I say, his elect in verse 33 in chapter 8, for example. But understand, he isn't just pumping up the home crowd. We know that he is challenging the Jewish concept of being the chosen people. Rick shared brilliantly last week that the whole idea of Abraham being the patriarch of God's people and Paul's point that, quote unquote, his people, it just wasn't a term reserved only for those of a specific ethnicity. And that was a huge bomb that was dropped. It was audacity to say that these filthy Gentiles are somehow worthy of God's favor, grace, and mercy. It's like, what? This would be the first time some, if not most, or all of these readers would have been hearing this firsthand. Sure, there was a council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, but how many of these readers were present? How many have heard this through anything other than a second or third hand witness at best? They think, Paul, this is unfair. We were the people of God. We were the ones enslaved, tortured, displaced, persecuted, and awaiting the Messiah's coming for 400 years in silence. And you're telling us that just any person can claim that nothing can separate them from God's love? Paul, you're wrong. You're a heretic. And so Paul methodically connects the truths that we saw last week in verses 1 through 13 to their Old Testament ballasts, to their foundations. Paul is not a heretic, but has taken the time he spent back home in Tarsus sorting this out since his own conversion. But that brings us to the second challenge that Paul addresses in these verses, verses 14 through 33. Paul, if you're right and you're not a heretic, then, well, God isn't right. He isn't just. He isn't fair. And so we enter into verse 14 with these things in mind. We love God. This seems incredibly disjointed to what we thought to be true. So God help us understand. Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, 
and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, Paul says in verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. I think we find incredible truths, five truths, in fact, when we read from this point of view and come to this passage. And the first one is this. God's authority is preeminent or primary. God is sovereign. And we need to thank God that he is that way. He is not swayed by his emotions. His emotions rather flow from his character and values. We are progressively in our culture being driven by our emotions to decide what is true and what actions we should take based on how we feel. And this is an error that Paul is addressing here with the Jewish people. Because it would be natural for those who had felt they were committed to their side of the, rela the relational equation to think at the very least that God would require those who had been beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant to at least become Jews first. And then, maybe then, they could have access to this mercy and grace found in Jesus Christ. They felt completely dismissed. They felt left out. But we see the arrogance, even in that statement alone, that they thought they had a right to God's grace and mercy, because this is the same group of people that God himself would describe in terms like prostitute and harlot in the Old Testament throughout the prophets. They had not upheld their end of the bargain. And yet God in his sovereignty, knowing what he was working all things toward, remained faithful in his relationship even to those who are disobedient and dismissive and oppositional to him. So Paul exclaims in verses 20 through 21 here in Romans chapter nine, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? See, God gives account to no one and no thing. Paul reminds me here of one of those moments of a parent who's been confronted by a child 
who perhaps when they were asked to come to dinner informs their parent that they're going to continue finish watching TV and their show or YouTube or maybe playing a video game before they come to the dinner table. He reminds me of that parent that responds, son, daughter, first of all, I bought the house, the TV and the remote and the service that you so casually assumed was yours to consume as you would please. Your mother has just said, it's time for dinner. So recognizing the fact that she is first your mother, and second, that she has prepared dinner for you, and third, that your very life is owed to her love and mercy, we're going to rethink and revisit the response that you just gave. Well, how much more then is God entitled to do what he wants, when he wants, with you and I? And all of creation and history for that matter. Yet because of his character, there is genuinely something so much deeper than a God who bases his decisions about our eternity on a whim or a feeling. Look at verses 20 through, two, through 23 with me again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Standing outside and above time, God, seeing things from of old and those things that take place a billion years from now, as though they were just as present as the moment we are in right now. God is aware of how each and every intimate detail of our lives fits into his redemptive history, and he has decided for us to experience mercy and share that glory in the recreation of our lives to be like him in our character. So yes, God's authority is preeminent, but also we see that his perspective is so much greater. The perspective of God is so much greater than ours. And it's why I love sarcasm that we even find in books like Job. And for those of you who thought sarcasm was reserved only for your teenage uh, child, uh, I want you to know that God was the inventor of sarcasm. And we find it, for instance, in chapter 38 of Job, when he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In verse five, he says, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or stretched the line upon it. On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy or who shut in the sea doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, this far you will come and no farther, and here your proud waves will be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken." Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. As a parent, we tell our children's things like, hey, when you get children of your own, you'll understand. And yet the reality is 
that there's an infinitely greater gap between our perspective and God's in comparison to ours and any child's. God's authority is preeminent. His perspective is greater. And when we examine his action and his perspective on display throughout history, we see that it is rich with purpose. 1 Samuel 12 verse 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Psalm 106 verse 8 says, Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Even in the New Testament, we read in 1 John 2, verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why? For his namesake. You see, all of history, all of creation and redemption exist in order to make known the riches of his glory. God does everything for his own glory for his name's sake. So this is why we read about predestination and election in so many places in scripture, like Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pause there just for a second. Remember that God has chosen to bless. He's chosen to display grace and mercy. And picking up in verse four of Ephesians one, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And what was the mystery of his will? It was a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The purpose of God in all of it is his glory. And think about it. Here is God with all power, with a greater perspective, with all authority, with an incredible purpose for his own glory. And in the face of our rebellion, his glory still reverberates throughout all eternity. And how? By annihilating those who dare to cross him or ignore his commands? No. His glory is found in providing for the redemption of all mankind and all those who, spoiler alert for chapter 10, call on his name and who are saved. This gospel at work, leading to the apex of all history, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's why we read in 1 Timothy 2.4, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm so thankful for the resources that we have, things like commentaries, things like Bible dictionaries. And when you come to the complete word study dictionary, we find two words that are incredibly important in these last two passages. 
The first from 1 Timothy 2, 4, the word desire in the ESV version there is actually thalo. And it has an expression or meaning of an active volition or an active one's will and purpose. But it's not the same word that we read in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says that God is patient towards you, not wishing. And both of these words can actually be defined as or translated as wishing or desiring or purposed. But he's not wishing that you should perish. And the second word there in 2 Peter 3, 9 is the word bulame. And this word carries or expresses the idea that there is an inward predisposition or bent from which this action proceeds. In other words, it isn't just the mere action of God displaying mercy and grace and love in his predestining. It is the nature and character of the God we worship. In other words, his bent, his desire, his patience is directed toward giving grace to us. And brothers and sisters, when does this mercy, when does this purpose, when does this plan find its security and foundation, its guarantee? Is it the moment when Jesus died? Was it when you and I decided to finally follow Christ as our Lord and Savior? Does our security rest in that moment someday out in the distant future when we reach heaven? No, the sureness of our salvation rests in God's unchanging character that when he in verse 23 prepared beforehand this trajectory of salvation there was and is nothing that is able to shift it because God's character is absolutely unwavering in Malachi 3 6 it says for I the Lord do not change James encourages us in chapter 1 and verse 17 through 18 every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Praise God that Hebrews 13, eight declares Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, God's perspective is greater. He acts for his own namesake and glory. And his glory is revealed through his character and his character is unchanging. And it's displayed through his acts of redemptive grace. And so here we find finally that the promises of God are secure. You see in verse 25, he says, as indeed Hosea, quoting chapter two, verse 23 of Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And then in verse 33, we see again, an incredible promise. It's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Everything we read in chapter eight holds firm, is fixed and immovable for those who put their faith in Christ. So when we read who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in verse 37 of chapter 8, we hear no in all of these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So brothers and sisters, we have five truths that we can cling to in this passage, that God's authority is preeminent, that his perspective is greater, that God's purpose is for his glory, that his character is unchanging, and God's promises are secure. And it's at this point that I realized we haven't really completely answered those two questions that we began with. If man does not have the free will to choose to surrender and follow Christ, then how do we actually have the ability to love God? Aren't we just machines or automatons or, or robots just playing our part? And the opposite question, if man chooses to love God and in response to that decision, God saves man, then how is God sovereign? See, we haven't necessarily answered those questions head on, but what we have done is we found a God who has infinite authority and perspective. He's determined to be glorified through the worship of those that he chooses to redeem in spite of their marred character. And because of his holy and unchanging character, he has extended and secured unmerited grace to all those who call on his name. Do I totally understand how the element of God's independent sovereignty perfectly unites with his own desire that all who call on his name would be saved and reach repentance? No. And, and I don't think anyone else has completely understood it in 2,000 years of Christian history. But brothers and sisters, I think there is some value. Yes, in asking these questions in order to know and understand how you and I will answer them for ourselves. But we have to understand that there's more clarity. There's no more clarity today than there was 1,500 years ago. At some point, we realize that God is sovereign. And we thank him that we cannot influence his plan and his purpose. But praise God also that he desires that all people would be saved. And according to Hebrews 10.10, 10, he has actually made the sacrifice once for all sin, for all time, so that all who call on his name would be saved. He's extended that mercy through his son's life for all those who believe. So perhaps could I encourage you towards maybe a greater pursuit than just answering those two questions in light of the truth that we saw today? I think there are four incredibly appropriate and hopeful responses that we can have as believers in light of these five truths that we read about God's nature and character. And the first is this. May our response first be praise for God just for simply who he is. Do we really praise God each and every day for his bent toward mercy and grace toward those who believe? The second, we've got to view all scripture through the lens of the gospel. We can't look at this as simply an intellectual challenge to find all of the answers to all of our questions. No, the gospel tells us instead rather that there is a God who lovingly desired to connect with and have relationship with us. And by his own sacrifice of his son, 
made that possible. Our goal isn't to get our answers. Our goal is to get God. And so in light of that, would we also pursue his purpose for our lives? Can we fulfill his purpose for our life and make that our primary objective as we love him and not simply to gain more intellectual knowledge and be able to answer the questions that we may have today or even quell the anxieties that might stir up in our heart today? Can we rather pursue him, the one who has all the answers and is able to comfort our very souls more than words or knowledge ever could? Could we trust his character today? In light of the grace and mercy that he has displayed throughout all history, can we simply just determine to trust him today? That those questions that remain unanswered, that for you might pertain to someone's illness in your family, a struggle relationally, can you determine, can we determine and encourage one another to simply trust in his character today? And then as we experience his love and grace, Can we point others to place their faith in his promises that are forever and ever, decidedly beforehand, before the beginning of time or a breath that we have taken, can we place our faith in those promises and encourage others to do the same? See, I think if we spend our lives pursuing these things, then the questions we often wrestle with are going to fade in light of the mission that we live out. Brothers and sisters, part of that mission, we have the opportunity to intercede on behalf of those that are even on the other side of the world today. Today, we have the opportunity to just share some prayer requests and needs that pertain to Romania, our partners and our friends there and the work that God is doing. And so, And today we're going to pray for families. We're going to pray for those who are on mission there on the ground in Romania. And we're going to pray for the government and efforts to, again, bring more gospel hope to this area of the world. And so will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we pray that you will bring more missionally minded families to Lifeline to pursue adoption to care for kids that are a part of Romania. God, that haven't heard yet this hope and this grace that we've just read about in death. God, would you stir their hearts, not simply to adopt a child, but to share the gospel with them. God, we pray for the you family. God, we pray for them as they are in the beginning stages of the adoption process. And we pray that you would just simply fill their hearts with great anticipation of what you're going to do, but God also strengthen them for the difficulties that we know that they're going to face. God, we pray for those who are serving on the ground now, who are a part of creative ministry efforts in light of the lockdowns and restrictions and COVID. God, would you give them fresh perspective on how you want them to minister in the days to come. God, we pray for Patrick Groza and his wife, Kyle, and their three girls. God, we pray for Regent Foundation as they continue to try to minister in villages in the areas around Fagarash. God, we pray that they would reach, for instance, the Roma 
kids and families who are in desperate need for help and in even greater desperation for the gospel. God, would you help them encourage churches to befriend and love these families that are oftentimes outcasts. God, we pray for the work of Arfo Romania without orphans, that God, that they would truly make an impact, not just simply in the lives of the children, but in the culture of Romania, that God, adoption would be something that is celebrated and not feared, that adoption would be seen as an opportunity to share the gospel and not simply something that would be an obstacle to life that would be expected. God, we pray for the government. God, would you place on their hearts a true desire to open adoption up to families all over the world? The God, they have so many children without homes, without families, without moms and dads. God, would you open their minds, their hearts, and God, just the legal process that would allow for more families to be able to adopt. God, we pray for those in the central government that are making these decisions. God, we pray for those who are in the national authority that are believers, that God, you would give them favor in the eyes of their colleagues, that laws could be passed, that doors could be opened, and that more children would have not just families, but experience the gospel tangibly day in, day out as they're a part of those families. God, we pray for Lifeline in all of our efforts, but God, especially in our team, who's working so diligently with those who can adopt from Romania. God, each day as they, they hit obstacles, as they're navigating different, um, not just obstacles when it comes to COVID, but God, when it comes to simple things like paperwork, and God, I pray that you just give them the grace to navigate those waters in a relational and in a kind and an expeditious way. And God, we pray for continued partnerships throughout Romania that would not just bring more children to be adopted, but God, even those who wouldn't be adopted, but God, they come to a saving knowledge of you because of the work that's being done. God, would you allow us, would you give us the grace and the opportunity to make an even greater impact for your name's sake. God, we ask all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.